Good morning again. Okay, for this second meeting, we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about justification and adoption. Um, we'll explore what the meaning of those words are and, and how they apply to us and what difference they really make and how it's important for us to know those things so that not only we are convinced about uh, the truth of our own salvation, but that we can effectively communicate these things with, with others. Um, coming in this morning, I was listening to um, uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias was on the, on the radio as we were coming in, uh, and he had uh, shared a, a, a story about an incident that occurred on a, on a television program several decades back in which um, two uh, lesbians had been invited to the program and in, in, the, in the course of the program they had um, uh, not only openly shared that they were lesbians but they had justified their behavior from scripture. And uh, uh, several people in the audience apparently were Christians and at least one of them stood up and, 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 and commented that that no, indeed, Scripture doesn't support that. It, it teaches the contrary. Uh, the, uh, the, the point that uh, Ravi was making in, in, the, in the story was that when, they were, when the Christians were questioned as to where Scripture taught, that the behavior was inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture and sinful, they could not point to a single passage of Scripture. Why is it important for us to understand and know what these words mean? Because at some point we're going to have to explain to somebody who has uh, a, a reasonable question about what it is that the Scripture teaches in regards to the person and work of Christ, to the doctrine of salvation. Every time you have a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, many times you engage in a conversation with somebody at work or in your neighborhood who's not a Christian and who questions we ought to know how to articulate the doctrines of our faith and point to the scriptures in defense of the arguments and, and positions that we're presenting. So this is part of the reason why we, we will cover these two very important truths as, uh, that the scripture presents. But let's go ahead and open up in a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your precious truth. We thank you for giving us your word. Help us, Lord, commit ourselves daily to the study, not just the reading, but the study of your word. Allow us to be sensitive to the instruction of the Holy Spirit as we, as we study, so that we may be able to not only solidify our own faith, grow in our maturity and in our walk with you, but be able to effectively represent you in a lost and dying world. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. We give you all the praise and glory for it is in Christ's name that we pray. So the word, the first word we're going to look at is the word justification, justification. Justification is a legal term implying a clearing of one's name. It is a legal word or legal term that implies the clearing of one's name name, the winning of a favorable verdict. Whether it be in a court of law or whether it be in the, in the court of public opinion, 
uh, or whether it be uh, in conscience. God's justification is not for the righteous. If you remember the words of Christ, I didn't come to, uh, you know, looking for the righteous, but I came to save the sinners. Justification is not for those who perceive themselves to be righteous, but it is for those who are wicked, sinners who recognize their need of, of justification. Therefore, justification is a judicial term or act of God whereby guilty sinners who put their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord are declared righteous in His eyes and freed from the guilt and punishment. Now think about that for a moment. There is a point in time in the life of all of us who have placed our faith in Christ in which at a specific moment, God made a legal declaration about our standing before Him. And only He could make it. <laughs> He's the judge. He's the one whom we have sinned against, whom we have offended, whose holiness and righteousness we have violated. And only God can make such a declaration. When we come to faith in Christ, listen to me, he makes such a declaration. It is a reality in all who have placed their faith in Christ. So it is a judicial act of God whereby guilty sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are declared righteous in His eyes and we are freed from guilt and punishment. Now, let's first discuss a little bit about the process of justification. So the process of justifi justification is, is simple enough to all who understand and appreciate God's love. But human or mankind's sinful nature makes it difficult to realize the extent of that love and mercy and to accept His unmerited uh, favor. So we know that Scripture, uh, in the process of justification, Scripture teaches us that it includes the forgiveness of sin and the application of Christ's righteousness. And all this is conditional upon faith. So as we talk about the process of justification, we have to talk about faith. Saving faith. is both a condition for something we talked about this morning, regeneration, as it is a condition for justification. Without it, we will not experience, or neither one of those acts will be a reality for us. Faith is both a condition of regeneration and of justification. Uh, and you recall in Romans chapter 4 that Paul uses um, the life of Abraham as an illustration of justification by faith. In fact, this was a critical uh, aspect in the Protestant Reformation, uh, the critical component being the word alone in justification. Uh, others don't deny the necessity of faith, but they 
do deny that it is by faith alone that one is justified. Paul is very clear in teaching us and in illustrating in the life of Abraham that justification is by faith and by faith alone. He states that righteousness was applied. It was counted. It was imputed to the patriarch without works. In fact, the law came long after the time when Abraham had been considered or declared to be righteous in the eyes of God. Abraham, now, you know, was a human like us, and Abraham made decisions that were inconsistent, certainly with the word and will of God, as we all do. Abraham never truly questioned the promises of God. Now, he may have thought he could aid God, in, in speeding up the fulfillment of some of those promises, but he never questioned the promises of God. As remote and seemingly as, 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 as uh, impossible as they may have seemed, he was fully convinced, the Scripture tells us, that whatever God promised, what? He would do. He would do. It is this kind of trust in God that the believer must have in order to be justified. One must be convinced. One must place his full trust and faith in the person of and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as we mentioned this morning, apart from faith, it is virtually impossible to please him. Another uh, um, now, there are many, another component is um, forgiveness. There are many passages in Scripture that declare God's willingness to forgive and remove the death penalty. Some of those passages include Psalm 130 or Micah chapter 7, Acts chapter 13, Romans chapter 8. We know that everybody has sinned. Paul was very clear about that when he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 that there is none, none is righteous, not even one. All sin, listen to me, all sin offends God. All of them. There is no difference between sins. There are not some that are, are uh, you know, like some may make a difference between one sin and another, some may call a, a particular sin a venial sin that doesn't cause you to lose justification, while other, on the other hand, the same group might teach that there is such a thing as a mortal sin, that if you commit that mortal sin, at that moment you lose your justification and you must once again regain it. All sin is offensive to God. There's no difference between uh, the sin. All sin offends God. His whole nature is turned against all sin. Why? Because he's holy and righteous. It is God who justifies, and this is the next term that we're going to discuss here, the issue of imputation. It is God who justifies. People cannot justify themselves, though we try to do that. We justify our behavior. We justify our actions we justify our way of thinking, 
But in reality, we are not justifying ourselves in terms of our, how God sees us. It is God who justifies. Only because of Christ's atoning death on the cross can God cleanse sinners and justify them completely. Listen to me. Isn't it, isn't it marvelous That God who intensely hates sin loves the sinner so much. Isn't that something? That the very God who hates sin so much loves the sinner so much. Justification is more than just pardon. Some people think of Justification is just being pardoned. But the scriptures are very clear that justification is far more than pardon. Sinners, we, before coming to faith in Christ, desperately need to be released from their guilt to save them from the judgment of a holy and righteous God. The forgiveness Or the forgiven sinner receives more than even a discharged criminal. Why? Because a discharged criminal may be said or declared to be free by a judge, but it doesn't mean that they are not still guilty of what they have been declared free from the judge. In the case of the believer, the moment that you are justified, you are declared forgiven and pure and holy. Why? Because of the imputed nature of Christ. All of you can attest to the simple fact that before you came to faith in Christ, it was virtually impossible for us to even Consider doing that which was right in the sight of God. Now, it doesn't mean we couldn't make certain choices in life that were, to some extent, moral choices, leaning on, 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 on the right side of the ledger. But we could do nothing that ultimately satisfied the holiness and justice of God. We couldn't. When one comes to faith in Christ, at that very moment, God imputes to that person the righteousness of Christ. And as we said this morning, as Peter says in his first epistle, we become partakers of the divine nature. For the first time, can a person now make the choice that is consistent with the word and the will of God? Why? Because he has the righteousness of Christ and he's a partaker of that divine nature. That is why I can experience victory over sin. That's why I can conquer. That's why I can, I can you know, uh, re reject and not fall into the traps of the devil because now I have been set free in the sense that I have the righteous nature of Christ. You, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus this morning, when God sees you, when God looks upon you, 
he sees the righteousness of Christ. There is not a single thing we will be able to say to God when we come before him other than the Christ of death, the death of Christ, the death of Christ on that cross, my receiving and appropriating that gift has caused you to declare me righteous in your own sight. By virtue of my acceptance of that gift, my appropriating of that gift, my sins have been forgiven. I am no longer guilty. There's nothing to punish me for. You hear me? Why? Punishment has already been suffered. Payment has already been made. When? When our sin was imputed to him. So when we come to faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. A very a great illustration of this principle is found in Paul's letter to Philemon. You remember Onesimus? Onesimus had been a slave of Philemon, and at some point he stole from Philemon and fled to the city of Rome. Now, what Philemon didn't realize is that he could flee from man, but he couldn't hide from God. And it was in Rome under the preaching of Peter that Onesimus came to faith. And when he came to faith, he realized that he needed to make things right with his master. He needed to go back to Philemon and correct the wrong that he had done. And when he went to Philemon, he carried with him a very important letter from Paul to Philemon. And you remember, we don't have to recount the entire thing but I want to get to one particular statement that Paul makes in that letter to Philemon, and he says this. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. That's a picture, an illustration of what has happened or what happens the moment a person comes to faith in Christ. All that was owed to God was placed on the account of Christ. He paid with his blood. Now listen to me. Don't lose sight of who it is that died. Don't lose sight of who it is that became a man in order to die. John says in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he tells us how it is that through Christ all things were created. And how did he create? By virtue of speaking those things into existence. It is that same one who, John declares, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Wow. Hmm? It is he who took on human flesh so that at some point, three decades plus later, he might be crucified and at that cross our sin. That which was on our account was transferred to his. And there's a verse right here on the wall that talks about the fact that the just died for the unjust. It is 
for that reason that we are now righteous in the sight of God. Because just as our sin was imputed to Him, His righteousness was imputed to us. And justification, lastly, I want to mention, is a free gift. Romans 3.24 talks about it be, uh, it, that the fact that it is given freely by His grace. Why? I mean, if you're a believer here this morning, have you stopped and pondered on this question? Why did he save me? Did he have to? Why? Well, Scripture abundantly talks about the fact that He loves. And I said here previously that though He hates sin, He loves the sinner. And look at the, look at the, look at the, look at the extreme to which He went in order to save you. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a picture of what was going to happen when Christ came. Ultimately, the sacrificial system ends with Him. Why? He is the Lamb of God. The one sacrifice that ultimately pays for sin. No other sacrifice is required because no one greater than Christ exists to make that such a sacrifice. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the sinner. <laughs> and to think that that decision was made in eternity past long before anything was even made. God had already devised the program of the drama of redemption. It isn't, isn't it interesting that as you look at the entire Scriptures, only three chapters in all of the Scriptures are dedicated to the creation and the fall. Everything beyond chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, is the drama of, of redemption. Only three chapters in all of Scripture are dedicated to creation and the fall. The rest of Scripture is the unfolding of redemption. Isn't it amazing? Then let's talk about the marvels. I know I'm getting older. Because I know there's a screen back there, but I can't really make out what it says. There's a big white thing back there. I need to wear my glasses is what I need to do. The marvels of justification. God's justification mean more, means more than pardon. I said that. It provides salvation and security. And listen, among other things, it includes peace and joy and eternal glory. The enmity between sinners and God, listen to me, 
ended at the cross. Your alienation to God ended at the cross or ended the moment you trusted the one who died upon the cross and what that death represents or accomplishes for you. The moment sinners believe in Christ, they are justified and they have peace with God. Listen to me. And anything that a non-Christian will define as peace is not what Scripture defines as peace. We have peace with God and the peace of God. This is not a mere truce, but a permanent and abiding relationship. Joy. The joy of justification springs from that assured hope of a glorious future in a distinctly and is distinctly the Christian's heritage. The world is hopeless. Those in the world without Christ are hopeless. We have joy because of the hope that we have. So in contrast, no hope is the characteristic description of those without Christ. Of all people, listen, Believers should be the most happy and joyful. Why? We are at peace with God and will enjoy Him forever. And by the way, we don't have to wait until we are in His presence in heaven to experience that joy or to be joyful, that, that starts the moment a person places his faith and trust in Christ. But in addition to that, well, before I go to the next one, Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. By the way, in light of many of the things that we see happening in our country today, particularly the start of the persecution of people of faith, particularly with Christians. Would we agree that's well within, you know, it has... Are we surprised? Or is it simply the working out of what Christ said would be a fact? In the world, this is... You will have tribulation. Last I, last I knew, America was in the world. Have you already decided in your heart and mind what you will do when it comes to your doorstep? Are you of the remnant who will stand regardless of the cost? Or are you pretending to be a Christian and will fold? the moment the heat gets turned up. I had a 
question come to me from, from uh, uh, my son-in-law. I, uh, I'm not sure where, 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 what started his thinking, but he sent me a, a text. I'm not sure what program or what he saw, but, uh, or maybe it was just news about the elections, but he, he said, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton were to get uh, elected, what do you think, what do you think, uh, how do you think the church will fare? Will many allow themselves to be censored? Will they start watering down their doctrine and theology and their preaching in order to conform? I said, certainly, we've seen that for decades now. <laughs> we have entire denominations that are no longer within the pale of Orthodox Christianity. And that's not going to stop. In fact, the Scripture is clear in letting us know that what will characterize the world, and that includes America in the end days, is apostasy, which is what? In fact, Jude spends a lot of time talking about that. Sure, but those who are committed to Christ, who truly know him, will stand. Not unlike Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen, God never told me, and uh, maybe I don't know if he's told you this, I can't say, I, I wouldn't be able to say that you can claim this from Scripture. He's never told me he's going to keep me from the fires, but he has promised to be in the fires with me. But I can endure because I have peace with God and that means far more than whatever the world might offer me. I have joy. And then the last thing is I have eternal glory. Christ in his farewell prayer asked the disciples, or asked the, the, that the disciples might be with him to be partakers of his glory in John chapter 17. Nothing can compare with the amazing grace of Jesus the Lord who consented to allow people to share his glory. Let's talk about now the final word, adoption. Adoption means the placing of a son. In a Roman, it is a Roman word. For adoption was little known among the Jews. It means the taking voluntarily of a child of other parents to be one's own child bestowing on him all the advantages of a child by birth. It is used of the believer when the question of rights, privileges, and inheritance are involved. God's adoption of believers into his own family shows his grace and gives believers a new status. You, 
if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are a son or daughter of the Almighty. Mm. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel that to those who believe he gave the right to become his children. Wow. We're no longer slaves, but sons. And we all now possess all the rights of children as well as an inheritance from the Father. It is when we focus on those things that we are able to persevere in a world that is just seemingly crushing down on us. And again, this has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with reality. It is so because the Word of God says so. I don't know, sometimes maybe you wake up in the morning and you don't feel so loved by God. If you don't feel so loved by God on any given morning, let me tell you something. He still loves you as much as he did yesterday. Why? Because scripture says he does. If he says you're a child adopted into his family, you are, regardless of how you might feel or regardless of what others might say. Let's talk about the participants of adoption. First, we have certainly the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 4, Paul said, They are Israelites, and, they, and to them belong the adoption. And comparing this with Deuteronomy 14.2 and Isaiah 43.1, it is evident that the reference is to Israel's being chosen as the people of God. In fact, in Isaiah 43, 1, it says, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Listen to me. You are mine. <laughs> you know what God says about you if you're a Christian? You are mine. God's marvelous protecting and delivering power was exercised over Israel. You see that over and over in the Old Testament. To them, his precious promises were given. It is through them that the Messiah came. It is through them that the oracles of God were delivered to us. They were his children by his own choice. But they chose otherwise. They turned against God as their father, completing their rejection and refusing the promised Redeemer, the very Son of God. Additionally, we have believers as participants of adoption. The loving heart of God still yearned for His people on whom he might shower the abundance of his grace. Thus, God, through the rejection of Christ, opens the door for the Gentiles. 
John 1.12 says again, and I mentioned it here previously, but to all who did receive him. Implication is some didn't. Who were those who didn't? The chosen people of God. But to those who did, he did. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's some things that come with adoption. First of all, adoption gives us a godly nature. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because we have the Spirit of God, We've been given a godly nature, a desire, a propensity now for the things of the Almighty. All who are adopted into the family of God partake of His nature. Peter tells us that in his first epistle. For he desires that all of his children, listen to me, resemble Him. Which implies or makes us think about what it is the world sees when they see us every day. <laughs> Do we reflect God? What, who do they see when they see us? What we say, what we do. In addition to giving us a godly nature, adoption gives us equal rights or gives all of us as sons equal rights. In verse 7 of Galatians chapter 4, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We all have equal rights as sons. We all are heirs through God. All of God's children are heirs. In some countries, children do not share the father's estate equally. If you were the firstborn, you had an advantage over anybody who came in after you. You were the one who would ultimately receive, if not all more, than the others. But not so in the family of God. We all share in the rights. We all will inherit the same thing. We have equal rights as sons. And then through, through adoption, we also, it, adoption also brings fellowship. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The moment we're adopted by God, we are brought into fellowship with Him. Again, we've been in justified. We are now righteous before the eyes of God. We can now be in fellowship with Him. Now, of course, if we sin... We must restore the fellowship, but we don't lose our justification. 
We must confess. We must repent. Now, the time of adoption, there are three particular points I want to make because adoption is both is, is, is a past, a present, and a future act. Uh, first, we have uh, uh, it is eternal in God's plan. When did he choose us? Long before we were here. From eternity past. Before the foundations of the world, says Paul. So adoption in the, if we use an anthropomorphism, in the mind of God occurred in eternity past. He had already decreed that those who come by faith to him will be his sons. It also, it is received when one believes. So we have the past and eternity, uh, eternal in God's plan. We have the present when received when one believes. The actual act of adoption cannot take place until a person is regenerated or born again. So that's the present time of adoption. And then we have the future, which will be completed at the Lord's return. The full revelation of a believer's status as a son of God is reserved for a future day, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. And then finally, let's... uh, Consider the results of adoption. First of all, we are no longer under tutors or bondage. But now, Paul says in in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are full-fledged, grown sons of God. That Greek word translated guardian means a trusted slave who cared for a child under, uh, until he was 12. So he was kept from physical and moral evil and accompanied him constantly, the, the guardian did of the, of the child. He gave him commands and he gave him prohibitions and limited his freedom. All of this is done to train the child for adult responsibilities. Thus the law was meant to lead people to Christ. And then because we are now sons of God, but now we are sons of God, so we are no longer tutors under bondage, but we are now sons of God. And he says in Romans eight seventeen, and if children, then heirs, and, uh, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have been, by faith, born again. We have been justified. We have been adopted into the family of God. All of those things are true only for those who have placed their faith in Him. If you haven't, then none of those things are true of you. For, they, for them to become true of you, you must believe. You must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Let's close. Father, we thank you for the many 
blessings that we have in Christ. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he took on human flesh for the sole purpose of dying on the cross so that we might experience regeneration, justification, and adoption, among other things. We are blessed because we are at peace and joy and we share in the eternal glory of Christ. May we shine as light and may we be the preservatives as salt, communicating the truth of Christ with love. We give you praise and glory for it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.